Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Open the pod bay doors now. I'm sorry, Dan. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the most you ever lost in the contest? Go ahead. Make my day. Everybody and welcome to this brand new episode of Black Hole Cinema with your host Tony Black. I'm recording this on May the 4th, so might be the first to say, May the 4th be with you! The first person ever to say that, of course. No one else makes that joke. And you're probably wanting to kill me now, aren't you? All you misers. I, I moaned about this on Twitter earlier, that so many people are going, Oh, May the 4th be with you, ha ha ha. You know, it's just, I just think you're all miserable. Uh, <laughs> but it has been an interesting week for Star Wars news obviously with the announcement of the new cast for episode 7 which has turned a lot of heads you know the obvious confirmation that we've got Harrison Ford Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill back not to mention Anthony Daniels and Kenny Baker as the droids and Peter Mayhew as Chewie so it's been interesting to see that finally they've admitted everything that we've guessed for months and they've thrown in some really new uh, and old actors as well along in the mix so that's been really interesting to see it's, I'm really excited that Max von Sydow is in this because he's he's just a legend in every way possible it's got a good bunch of people now so I'm I'm really excited for that film I think I think it's going to be ace sadder news of course this week with the passing of Bob Hoskins which really took a lot of people by surprise I think really I don't think he'd been massively well and he had retired from from acting but it was a real shame to hear that he died of pneumonia at the age of 71 because he was a great actor somebody made a comment actually I think it was on Twitter that even though Bob Hoskins has been in some rubbish films he's never been bad in them and I, th I think that's very true actually the film I'll always remember him from really was Hook because I loved Hook as a child I still do really in many ways and he was just great in Hook as Smee opposite Dustin Hoffman's Captain Hook and even though he's done many other great films like Mona Lisa and The Long Good Friday and things like that, it will be Hook for me is the one that I'll always remember him fondly for. So, rest in peace, Bob, and thank you for all the movie memories. On a happier note, let me just give a shout out to a friend on Letterboxd who uh, asked me to give him a shout out. Hello, Waldo in Puerto Rico. 
I'll stop saying Puerto Rico like that now because you'll probably want to shoot me. And Waldo's a very cine literate guy, often gives me recommendations about films after he reads my reviews. So thanks for listening, Waldo, if you are tuning in. Thank you to everyone else who is. Onwards then to the show today, and we have reviews of The Other Woman, much promised last week, Blue Ruin, the new indie feature, Pompeii, the boisterous new blockbuster on the block, and finally Bad Neighbours, the zany comedy that everyone has been looking forward to, I suppose. You'll also get a rundown of the current UK Top 10, as I did last week, and you'll be hearing about some of the films that I've watched over the last week or so plus a very special guest coming on and talking about their favorite film so without further ado my first review then this week is one i promised you last week that would be good and so i've got a fair bit to live up to here but this could be this could be the worst film of the year if it's not it's going to be in the bottom five i I would put money on that i suffered the other woman this is big. You haven't dated just one guy in a long time. You cleared the whole roster. I cleared the bench. Hey, what's wrong? A housekeeper called a pipe person's bathroom. So you're going to Connecticut now? I gotta think of it. I'm looking for Mark. You must be his housekeeper. <laughs> no, I'm his wife, Kate. Oh. Is this some kind of strippergram or something? Oh. What happened? He's got a wife. And you don't think you can take her? Are you for real? I thought maybe we could have some dinner. I let you in. We are not drinking Cosmos and braiding each other's hair. (laughs) I am not ready to compete with women like you. We got played by the same guy. Tequila or do you want vodka? So you're saying I should leave him? What does your gut tell you? (laughs) Jesus. Okay, now, tell me, tell me that that trailer, hearing that trailer, didn't make you want to kill yourself. Tell me, tell me that now, because that trailer was just one of the most excruciating things I have ever sat through. And I was sitting through it relentlessly. All the time I was at the cinema, watching all these films that I've been reviewing over the past few weeks, almost every single showing, there would be that trailer for The Other Woman. And every time I saw it, it made me hate the film more and more now i've got a confession to make normally i wouldn't go anywhere near the other woman but obviously because i started this podcast my mission myself you know fulfilling mission is to see everything so try and see everything i've got a cine world card i'm doing a podcast i'm talking about films i want to go and see everything and it's not the kind of film that a man should or would normally go to on his own because it is a chick flick. There is no other way about that. No other way to describe it. It is a chick flick. Although, to be quite honest, I think that's insulting to chicks, in inverted commas, to women. But it is technically a chick flick. So, you know, it's not something you go on your own. I didn't really want to go on my own. So, And it's not something I can call up a guy mate to go up and see. So I, I asked my girlfriend. I said, do, do, do you want to come and see the other woman with me? And she said, yeah, but you've been telling me for weeks how you, you, you hate the idea of this film. And I was like, well, yeah, but I, I still need to see it. If anything, that's why I need to see it. I need to see if it's as bad as that trailer suggests. Because these trailers, you know, they're getting worse. And, and I, I'm still saving up my trailer rant for a podcast at some point. But these trailers are getting worse. And the other woman trailer, it does tell you everything that happens in that film. I was timing it. There's literally, that, that trailer tells you everything that happens in the film up to about 90 minutes. And it's about 106 minute film. 
Okay, so it's only the last 15 minutes that the trailer doesn't really show you anything of, and that's all very easy to guess anyway. So the, the trailer's horrific, horrific, in so many ways. So I said, okay, I'm gonna, I'll, we're, we're going to go and see it. So I went to see it, and, uh, you know, it, it was... It was something that I went in fully expecting to hate. And I, I don't like doing that. I like giving everything the benefit of the doubt. You know, last week, when I went to see Transcendence, even though I'd heard all these reviews, and I'd not read them, but I'd heard, seen so many bad scores, and I'd heard people saying it's... And I'd not gone into detail about why, but I went into Transcendence desperately hoping that they were wrong, desperately hoping that I would see something in it that other people didn't. A bit like Mark Kermo did when he went to see Transcendence, and he enjoyed it. And a friend of mine, my friend Adam, his mate, said it was a brilliant film. And I was thinking, oh, right, I'm going to go in, I'm going to see it, I'm going to love it. And I didn't. I didn't, as last week's episode showed. And I went into The Other Woman, however, with that hate that I don't want to have for anything. I went in thinking, this is going to be awful. This is going to be mind-bogglingly bad. And it was. (laughs) It really was. And all through the film, I was trying to forgive it certain things. You know, I was trying to, because I was with my girlfriend and she was laughing at points. And she kept looking at me and, and rubbing my arm because she saw my face contorted into what can only be described as like a, a, a grimace of pain for quite a lot of it. And, you know, for her sake, I was trying to I was trying to enjoy it more than I would have done if I'd have been on my own. If I'd have been on my own, I'd have been gripping the seat, desperately trying not to leave. But it was, you know, I was so I was I was doing my best to enjoy it, but I just couldn't. You know, the, I, I, I confess there were about three laughs in the film. There were about three laughs. There was one that I can remember two of them. Two of them involve a dog. Two of them involve a dog. One is, is a dog taking a shit on some parquet floor, in which he's, he's funny in any context. The second one is, a, is the same dog smacking Cameron Diaz in the face with its balls. That, again, again, a dog smacking someone in the face with the balls is going to be funny. It's especially funny given it's Cameron Diaz in this film, and she deserves being smacked in the face with ball, many balls for this. And the third one was was a line from Don Johnson. Uh, uh, Yeah, yes, Don Johnson is in this. Talk about taking the money and running. Anyway, yeah, he he says something funny. What what, what was the line now? He says, he's talking about how he's dating an an Indian woman and and he's eating all kinds of Indian food, including naan bread. And his daughter says, well, when when did you start eating naan bread? And he says, well, she's a 25-year-old contortionist. I'll eat whatever she tells me to eat. That made me laugh. That made me chuckle. But that was just, you know, that wasn't even one of the main characters that made me laugh. And it's just, those were the three laughs, I think. Those are the three I can remember throughout the entire 106 minutes. The rest of it was just painful. And and it was, it was, it was interesting because it, it was a half, quarter to half full cinema we saw it in. And I've no doubt that the other woman's going to do fairly decent business, even if it gets bad word of mouth. Because it has Cameron Diaz for a start, you know, and she's well known. It's it's a it's a comedy in inverted commas, so people will go and see it for some light relief. Ah, oh, that other woman, let's go and see that. That'll be a laugh. Huh. So it'll do fairly well. So there were people in there, and I came after afterwards. I said to my girlfriend, I said, "Did you notice that there weren't many people laughing at at, at all throughout that film?" And she did. She did notice that that there was the odd titter, and there were there were people laughing at certain things that I just found repulsive, but. She, you know, it was it was a largely there was one scene in particular I remember where Cameron Diaz is on someone's doorstep, and she basically has to make a hasty exit, and she trips over a, a, an urn, a big urn, and then she falls into some bushes, and it's it's a proper you know pratfall slapstick moment, and nobody laughed. It was just tumbleweed. It was, 
you know, and I almost laughed at the fact nobody was laughing at this deeply unfunny moment and playing out on screen. That I was sitting there thinking, yeah, this is clearly, you know, you, you thought was funny and it's just not. That could be said for a lot of the film, actually. That could be said for, you know, the whole, the whole, you know, appearance of Leslie Mann. And I, I am yet, I am yet to understand the point of Leslie Mann. Okay. I don't understand the point of that. I really don't get it at all. I, I quite liked her in Knocked Up. You know, that was the first time I saw Leslie Mann properly in Knocked Up. She, yeah, she was in The Cable Guy years ago, but I tried to forget The Cable Guy existed, so I forgot she was in that. But but yeah, I quite enjoyed her in Knocked Up when she was with Paul Rudd, and you know, they, they were two of the funniest people in it, even though from then her voice has always been incredibly shrill and nasal and annoying. You know, oh, that's, you know, oh! So, you know, but she, obviously, you know, she's been in these things. She was in This Is 40, which was pretty rubbish. And she keeps doing things that keep, have got her a bit more well-known. And now she's able to co-headline a, a comedy that's away from Judd Apatow, her husband. And say what you like about the Judd Apatow films. At least they have a certain barometer of quality, even if it's, it, it's varying at times, you know. Sometimes he does a 40-year-old virgin. Sometimes he does a funny people. So it depends. But she's normally in that bracket. But in this case, she's been let loose under Nick Cassavetes, who's the director, who, you know, presumably has had a humour bypass because he, he, he seems to, he must think to think this is really funny and it just isn't. So I'm yet to understand the point of Leslie Mann. Cameron Diaz really, really doesn't have a gift for comedy and I don't know who keeps telling her she does. You know, she re- she just doesn't have it. You know, she, the, last, the last one I really remember seeing her in was Bad Teacher, which wasn't very good itself. You know, even that was by Jake Kasdan, you know, and he, he's got a good family reputation but that wasn't good you know she's just not funny she just isn't funny and she plays an absolute bitch throughout a lot of this and that is the point as well the characters in this because the story ostensibly is this Cameron Diaz is this woman who's who's sleeping with Jamie Lannister from Game of Thrones and believe me he's got a lot of debts to pay for this and she but she doesn't know he's married he's married to Leslie Mann and when she finds out he's married to Leslie Mann Leslie Mann basically plays this really neurotic woman who attaches herself to Cameron Diaz because she wants to understand why her husband is fucking other women and then they become unbelievably friends who then find out he's sleeping with another girl played by this model called Kate Upton who's gorgeous don't get me wrong she looks great but you know she's got about as much acting talent as my arsehole so then it's like you know they all then they all then become friends when they and they decide to get revenge on him when they find out he's, he's not he's knocking it off with other women and he's you know and conveniently, Leslie Mann has a hot, in inverted commas, brother. Hot means, of course, boring, right? And uh, Cameron Diaz starts to fall for him. And, you know, they start putting tri- doing tricks on, on Jamie Lannister and putting it to, giving him, like, laxative in his drink and hair removal cream. And I'm spoiling nothing by this because this is all in the trailer. This is all in the, in the trailer that shows the whole film. And it's, you know, it's just... It's just puerile, and and it's got such predictability. There is nothing in this film that you won't be able to predict. Nothing at all. It's it's buoyed on convenience. It's buoyed on plot points that just are so obvious they they might as well be signposted a million miles away. The characters aren't remotely real. And I said earlier about how this is an insult to chick to chicks in inverted commas to women. It for me this it is okay. You know if if you're a woman and you enjoy this, then I don't understand. Because you are more intelligent than men. Most of you are more intelligent than we are. Believe me, okay? And there are a lot of stupid, dumb male films out there. 
But this is a stupid, dumb female film, and it is insulting to women to think that this is this is the funniest that women can be because it really isn't. Okay, it's 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 just puerile, sickening garbage for a lot of it, and it's it, you know, I will say this: it's not hateful. It's not as to to quote my friend Chris Wilson when he talked about identity thief. It's not a hateful piece of shit. It's not okay. It's not. It's not even the worst chick flick ever made. It's not okay. There are worse than this, but it's close. It's close. It's middle class, sycophantic, smug, unfunny, cheesy, but not in a good way. Just corporate. Money dripping, soulless, vacuous bilge that just honestly, honestly made me just want to throw up for a lot of it. It re- it just really did. It was just awful, and it is it is you know I, I didn't think anything was going to beat Need for Speed for this this year's worst film, but this this is worse, definitely, definitely. Oh God, I, and I haven't even mentioned Nicki Minaj. I haven't even mentioned Nicki Minaj. And you know what? I'm not going to mention Nicki Minaj because I don't think I can really say anymore without vomiting. But believe me, if you think everything I've just talked about is bad, you wait, you wait until Nicki Minaj turns up. Okay? See this at your peril. You're the weirdest friends ever. We are the weirdest friends ever. What is up with your hot brother? No, you can't have my husband and my brother. That's being very... So I did a marathon three film on the bounce watch at the cinema this weekend, inspired by my friend and occasional guest on Black Hole Cinema, Chris Wilson, who did a four film marathon. And I know Carl West, another online friend, formerly of Compass Network, did similar or does similar on regular occasions. I thought I'll give it a try because there was quite a few films I wanted to see and catch up with over this bank holiday weekend. So it was interesting to do and I started with what was easily the best film of the three, Blue Ruin. I apologize for the mystery. I don't mean to scare you. You're not in any trouble. I just thought you should be somewhere safe when you found out. With somebody. He's going to be released. I don't know how much you may have missed. It's an awful thing you did to them. Blue Ruin, then, is a very low-budget indie feature, which has started to get a lot of critical buzz. It went to Cannes, and it has got rave reviews from various different sources from both sides of the pond. And importantly, it was Kickstarter-funded. So, like a lot of these projects now that are taking off through people sponsoring them, Blue Ruin is an example of a movie that has been made based on word of mouth and people liking the script and people putting their own money in to make sure that it happens. And the result is genuinely one of the best films of the year so far. Well, I collated later on the full list of 2014 films, and I'm keeping track of all the films I watch, and I'm ranking them against each other. It's it's already gone in at number six 
out of nearly 30 films, 30 new films I've watched almost this year. So it's it's got quite a high pedigree. And that's because it's not a conventional film in the usual sense. It's directed by a guy called Jeremy Saulnier, who hasn't done, I think that's how you say his name, who hasn't done anything really before this of note. So he's a new face, a new kid on the block. And what he's crafted here with Blue Ruin is essentially on paper a revenge thriller although it's kind of giving it the wrong moniker saying that it's a thriller in the traditional sense because it really isn't it's more of a brooding slow burning drama about the complete self-destruction of one man essentially it focuses on a, a guy called Dwight who's played by a guy called Macon Blair who is absolutely riveting in this role he looks a bit like Nigel Farage but put that aside <laughs> um, and you know I'm sure his politics is, isn't as horrendous as that man's but he, he's he got this very low key brooding intense acting style that works perfectly for this role he plays a character called Dwight who starts off very dishevelled long hair long beard living out of his car no job no prospects isolated doesn't really talk to anybody He's, co- he's completely shut off from the world. He goes around, he pickpockets thing, he pickpockets people, he steals to, go, to get by. He's not a criminal in the set traditional sense. He's somebody whose life has been completely shattered by a trauma that slowly Saulnier begins to unravel throughout the course of the film. And, and it, the first 20 minutes don't practically have any dialogue in it, which is quite an adjustment. And you realise that he's telling the story very visually. This is a perfect example of show, don't tell, Blue Ruin. That old maxim, show, don't tell, which writers completely seem to ignore and directors completely seem to ignore after time. But when filling things with reams of exposition, Blue Ruin doesn't do that. Blue Ruin is fully telling the story through the visuals. In fact, there are only about four, four or five proper conversations throughout the whole film. And they are staged and paced at various points that help propel the narrative, propel Dwight's journey and speaking to people of significance on that journey. And that journey, essentially, you would think from the beginning is, if you had the opportunity to kill the person who murdered your family, would you take it? And the skill that Saulnier's film has is that Blue Ruin doesn't do the conventional, okay, this is going to be about a man preparing to kill this person, and that happens towards the end, or late, late in the second act and things like that. Or it's about somebody who goes round, tears up a million different people into bits. Like, you know, like, a, like say, a Jason Statham thriller would be, right? It's not that kind of film. This is about the consequences of what happens when you make that choice and the answer is yes, as in, I am going to kill that person. What happens after that happens? And it's no major spoiler to say that the first act sees Dwight commit murder. It's then what happens beyond that that is the really interesting part, and that is really what Blue Ruin is about. It's about isolation, and Dwight is completely isolated in many ways, not just in terms of the life choices he's made, but also the way Saulnier shoots, the places he shoots. It is set in, in stark, open land quite often. You know, it's, it, it, it has that real feeling of being open in, in the middle of the plains and things like that, and it's a very bleak film in many ways but it is about victims and Dwight is a victim he's a victim of himself as well as a victim of being caught up in this horrendous family drama 
that involves two families and having to find a way to exist and live on without that completely destroying his life and it has destroyed his life and we, we see this completely from the context of him from his point of view you know there, there are no cutaways to other people involved this is all about what Dwight goes through and the choices he makes in order to exact some kind of justice but the, the crucial thing with this and, and the skill of Sonia's script and, and his direction and interestingly enough at the end it says written, directed and photographed by Jeremy Saulnier which is, which is an interesting thing to say because you don't normally see photographed and that is quite a key thing for Blue Room because it is very much through as I say through the visuals through the photography through painting a picture without words quite often but the script manages to keep things focused on Dwight to the point that what he does and the things the choices he makes there are it does affect other people but we don't see their point of view we don't cut away to them we don't tell that kind of narrative so it is isolated into Dwight and he's a very internal character and, and Malcolm Blair is a very internalised actor he talks with his eyes he doesn't he doesn't necessarily need to use words he talks with his movement with his eyes with his expressions and it is genuinely one of those things where it's more about what he doesn't say than what he does and that's and that's the strength of Blue Ruin that it can it can still engage even without reams of dialogue everything being pointed out you know it doesn't necessarily offer up everything on a plate it doesn't necessarily give all the details that are going on and, and crucially morally and it, it, it is a film that asks a lot of moral questions morally who is in the right because that's not something either that Saulnier wants to be completely clear on or completely set on you know he, he doesn't want to make the, our minds up for for us you could leave here thinking that Dwight is as bad as the people that he's trying to find vengeance upon. But it's how you perceive the moral question about what he's doing and whether what, whether what he's doing is right. And it taps into a lot of things about whether the state system is good enough in America, whether or not you know people are being served justice in the right way. There's a lot of underlying things about gun control because there's a lot of use of guns in here. And the violence is very much... It's powerful because it's talking about the destructive nature of violence in many ways and there are there are some really really horrible moments of violence that punctuate at various points and help Saulnier really create this quite gripping narrative you know it is quite gripping in quite often quite often many ways so it's quiet in a lot of places and some people could potentially get a little bit bored I wasn't bored I was drawn into it quite a lot and I found myself impressed visually by it I was impressed aesthetically by it I was impressed by what it wasn't saying as much as what it was saying and the subtext and the themes and it builds this really quite unremittingly bleak ending but yet it's one that feels right it feels deserved in a way and it's also tight it's, it's roughly about 90 minutes it's a tight compact piece of work that is just very impressive it's a very impressive start it's, it's, a, it's not a thriller it's, it's more than a drama it even has a really sort of really dark undercurrent of black gallows humour as well in places so it's got this blend that is, feels quite fresh with a really great performance at the centre of it and it's definitely in a period where there are a fair few films that are very traditional Hollywood and Obvious. It's one of those films that you should seek out because it is speaking to a little bit more than the usual. But 
if you want a date movie take it to see Bad Neighbours hello it's me by my count that's two of yours and two of mine I don't know how this ends Okay, welcome back, guys, and uh, this is my favourite part of the show, when I get on a friend and have them tell me what their, and you, what their favourite movie is. And uh, today I'm delighted to have a good friend from the continent on my show. Also, it's a girl, and I'm always happier when I have a girl to talk to, because girls are better than boys, as we know. And she's thumbing up, yeah, right now, she's happy at that. Let me introduce to you, Eleanor Vrenne from France. Hello, Ellie. Hi, everyone. Did I get your name right there? Was that a good, was that a good? It was, it was spot on. Spot, bless her. That's good. And we, we did, we totally didn't rehearse that before the, you know, I started recording. <laughs> Obviously not. Okay, thanks, thanks for coming on, Ellie. My pleasure. Do you want to tell us then what your favourite movie is? Okay, so um, when you first asked me to come on your podcast and you asked me what my favourite movie was, I was sort of, you know, having a, a panic attack because I'm like you, I love all movies, you know, mm. and it was hard to pick one. And so I tried to remember which was the one that made me sort of um, feel differently or that um, was kind of special, you know. And I chose Her by Spike Jonze, which uh, won Best Screenplay at the latest Oscar ceremony. And um, it's basically a movie, it's a, it's a love movie, but it's not like any love story, because it's about a guy named Theodore Wombley, whose job is to write uh, love letters. And he's struggling with his divorce, and he's not really in a good place at the beginning of the film. And I have to mention as well, it's a futuristic sort of movie. Mm. It's uh, set in 2025, I believe. Okay. And so Theodore is kind of lonely, kind of um, kind of depressed, and uh, he decides to purchase um, the new OS One, which is an operating system, which is more than a computer, really. It's a, it's some something else it's like a conscience almost mm. and he's gonna fall in love with this operating system um his name is samantha which is played by scarlett johansson and i believe we are all falling in love with scarlett johansson's voice absolutely and and, and the rest of her if i'm honest and the rest of her yeah but the greatest thing about this movie is that we we only hear her voice and it's absolutely fantastic and I think it's a great movie because it's such an honest one. Mm. Nothing is really overdone. Um, the script is, is wonderful. The colors of the movie are really, they, they're quite compelling. And I mean, the actors are absolutely fantastic. And I think I, I won't say too much about the movie because I, I don't want to spoil it. Mm. But it's, it's very moving. It's very touching. And I think I was so happy well I was obviously really depressed when I got out of the movie because <laughs> it, it brought up a lot of feelings mm. if I can say so and it's 
it's really it's really hard not to cry when you're in a dark room and <laughs> you have all these beautiful dialogues and this amazing music which is by um, by Arcade Fire mm. Arcade Fire mm. sorry mm. and it's it's just really honest and really moving and I really love the movie. <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, yeah, it sounds like you did. And the the interesting thing, obviously, is that her is, is a matter of months old, isn't it? So to jump so high above so many other movies that you've watched, and as you say, you're like me, you're an avid movie watcher. You could frankly do your own podcast and do it better than me, right? You've watched that much, you could. So you've, you know, for it to jump that high, it obviously really, really connected with you, didn't it? It, it does because, you know, I I was thinking about this movie and I thought, well, I totally found myself in it, you know. Mm. I could totally relate to the character because he's he's quite melancholic. He's he's quite a romantic person, mm. as I am. Mm. And and I don't know, what he says during the movie feels so real and it really connected with former love experiences that I've had mm. and I it really made me think about my previous relationships and it's not just a movie about technology and I know that a lot of critics have pointed out the fact that it's about you know um warning people how um how technology can drive you mad basically mm. and that we're getting so dependent from it mm. And I don't think it's that much about the technology as about the feelings, you know. It's really, the feelings is are the heart of a movie. And you really understand what it is to love and how you love. And it sort of brings a lot of questions as well about monogamy and mm. how you love a person. What do you expect in a person? Mm. And the fact that he's basically falling in love with an operating system sounds just really completely strange and quite fucked up, to be honest. <laughs> but at the end of the movie, you you understand and you can totally relate. And, and you also have all these questions about how the others feel about this relationship that sounds really odd. And it, I don't know, it just... It just made me think a lot about my relationships and the choices I had made, you know, for the various relationships I, I had I've been involved in, and it it was it's just it's such a beautiful movie. I can't I can't find any other words. It's it's just really moving and beautiful and honest, and it's not a soppy movie as well. Mm. Like you're not crying all the time. There's actually there are actually moments. They're really, really funny, including one with a video game. Right. I won't spoil it for you, but it's <laughs> super funny, you know, to see how the director sort of imagined how we're going to play video games in the future. Mm. And there's a scene that it, it's absolutely cracking. Yeah. And so you, you have, it's the script is written in a form that's very nothing. No, there's not one scene that feels out of place. You know, or you think, oh, that's kind of lazy. That's kind of, yeah, lazy in a way, you know, mm. in, in terms of writing. Mm. And it's, you don't get bored. But then I feel it might be a chick film. Do you think? <laughs> but but I, I have to say, my boyfriend thought it was really great as well. So, you know. Did he think it was great because he wanted to impress you? Or do you really think that he actually thought it was great? No, he did. He, he did. Of, you know, obviously, he made fun of me for crying like a baby <laughs> all the time. And he sort of looked at me with that weird look, you know, at the end, like, mm. <laughs> I, I saw it coming a mile. Yeah, yeah. 
but I, I, I do believe that it, it can touch anyone basically, mm. and it can, and it can really wake, waken up feelings in you. Is yeah. that how you say? Yeah, 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 yeah. Awaken feelings. And, yeah. Um, and I also believe that there's, um, there's something that's that feels really raw about it. It's mm. not that no, not. There's not there's not one dialogue that feels like it's too philosophical right. or it's too sort of a, you know indie movie geeky yeah. talking you know like yeah. it's really really honest and really straightforward and um it's it's basically about why we love how we love and it's just very simple and very honest and I I really like the fact that it's very representative of. Of us, basically, even though it's a love story between a human and an operating system. But it, but and it's quite, it's quite, it's tapping into some really like, you know, present themes, isn't it? Because obviously, you know, and this is probably why Spike Jones won the Oscar for screenplay, um, because he's he's tapping into the whole thing of how even though the world seems to be getting uh, smaller because of, of you know all this technology and and social media and the, I mean, me and you, we're, we're talking on Skype right now. You know, we're, yeah, we're in different countries and we're talking on Skype and it's like you're in my living room. It's like you're sitting That's here. The beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. But at what point does it become more than that? At what point it, it, do we lose a certain, are, are we losing a certain connection with people with this or are we gaining it? And that's, and there's a lot of questions about that now in a lot of films. So to do that, to do that topic through a romance, through a romance and through, you know, something that touches people. It's it hadn't been done before, had it? And I think it's it's great as well that you never see Samantha, the operating system. Mm. It's all you only hear her voice. Mm. You never, and I know that so many futuristic movies have sort of you know played that theme already and tried to build you know a robot or something, yeah. or always try to imagine what the physical aspects of technology would be. And here, there's no there's no yeah there's no physical part of Samantha. We never we never see her and there's never in the movie a point where he tries to imagine what she looks like she she only is and it's i mean it's a beautiful performance by scarlett johansson to be honest because each of her words is is so compelling and i i also love joey phoenix he's just completely amazing because with his looks you would never you would never guess he would be able to play such a yeah sensitive and um, and sort of yeah melancholic character, mm. and he's just so perfect. And I remember that um, there's a line where they're talking together, and um, she says, "How does it feel to be alive in this room right now?" Meaning with me, you know, and sharing that moment with me, etc. And he barely speaks, but you could totally see what it feels like to be in love. He has the look of love, you know, mm. and he's he's just playing it so right. It is he he's just perfect, honestly. And um, I love the second the um, supporting characters. Yeah, <laughs> are really good as well. Um, Theodore has this friend who's played by um, Amy Adams, mm-hmm. and her character is named Amy as well. Okay, and um, she befriends an operating system as well, and. Um, so you kind of see what types of relationships you could have with these sort of operating system, and well, I, I can't spoil it, which is really <laughs> I really want to talk about the end. This is really frustrating. Don't, because I haven't seen it. 
but yeah, but Amy's character is really interesting because she's an artist and she's misunderstood by her boyfriend. Right. Um, he sort of bringing brings her down all the time. Mm. She sort of finds comfort in in the operating system that's with her, and it's it's nice to see. I mean, it's really interesting to see how they connect, even though they they are they have nothing in common or they're just it's just a human and an operating system, mm. and it makes you wonder why you connect with people and how you connect with them and what do you expect from a relationship, whether it be friendship or a love relationship. Mm. And I think it's it's very subtle. It's very it's never it's never forced or anything. And I I really I really thought it was an honest script, you know. Mm. And for the first time, I think. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say something that's probably going to upset you right now. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> you know you know that I loved um, 12 Years a Slave, right? Yes. A fantastic movie, right? Yeah, brilliant. But then I thought about her and I was like, well, I can relate to her because yeah. I've had those feelings and I've had those experiences and I've, I've had to deal with a breakup and I've had to deal with you know finding someone else and mm. uh, finding comfort in a friend. And then I was like, well... I loved 12 Years a Slave, but I thought that I was more touched by her because mm. I could relate so much. Mm. And it really it really made me cry so much because I, I, I really found myself in the character, in the main character. I was like, I'm just like him. And basically, I am I was just going through that phase a couple of weeks ago, you know. So it, it mm. felt very... I mean, I'm, I'm a sensitive person, I have to say. I'm a really empathetic person, but I, I really connected with the characters. And um, the staging helps as well. Mm. Um, all the costumes and, and this, the, the, the sissy sort of look, uh, which is very futuristic, but feels sort of uh, not too weird. You know, mm. it's not like the fifth element, like yeah. nothing's flying around or anything. It, it just feels like something that could literally happen. So it, it helps you sort of connect a bit better, you know, because you, well, you could totally see yourself in it. And, yeah, um, yeah. And, it's, and the fashion as well is really funny and sort of feels like it could go this way. So yeah. I really liked it as well. It was a nice, it was a nice touch. It's recognisably futuristic. It's one of those in that, like, because yeah. it was 2025, didn't you say, when it's set? So. Yeah. That's that's around the corner, really. That's eleven years yeah. away, and you know by that time, you know people have always when they've made films, you know they in the eighties, seventies, eighties, they've always seemed to envisage the start of the twenty first century. Or we'll have flying cars, and we'll have like you know exploring space. And it's like, well, no, we we haven't got that much more now. We we only have iPads, really, and things like that. <laughs> you know, we're not. It's technology speeding up, but in, in 10 years, it's, the world isn't suddenly going to become this fifth element kind of place. So it, it's more realistic to have that kind of system where, you know, it could be that we have a certain element of AI in our computer systems by then. We already do. We already, yeah. I mean, we already have, like, really, because technology is going into our home now. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. it's everywhere, and I think... Her is about technology going from our home to our hearts, really. Yeah. And it's about how you deal with that and how you're affected by it. And is that really important that you're affected by it? I wonder, I know that so many people thought and so many critics thought it was it was like a warning, but I really felt as some that that it might not be that bad, you know, finally. Mm. It's 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 it may be a good thing it may be a good thing to connect with this sort of um, 
operating system with this sort of technology because it ultimately allows you to sort of give in to mm. your feelings, you know, and it sort of you know, made you make you realize how you feel and how deep are you willing to go, really. And it might not be a bad thing, and it might be a very personal question and debate rather than something that we should consider as a global debate, as mm. something that we should be all worried about. It may be just about our personal choices. And I, I, I really thought it was a brilliant, brilliant take on what our feelings are made of and how we deal with them. And I, I, it's, it's so good. I, I'm so excited <laughs> just talking about it and I can't wait for you to see mm. it. I feel like you're going to be disappointed by it. But, um, I, I, I don't know. know. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those people who, when people tell me something's awesome, I get more excited and it's very rare. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Yeah, that I end up. You know, some people, they don't like hype, do they? And they'll go and watch something. Everyone's been telling them it's brilliant. And they'll go, no, I didn't like it. Whereas me, I normally go, you were right. That is awesome. You know? I'm, I'm so, hope, I hope I'm not building the hype, you know, and then you're going to be so disappointed when you see No, that. no. You, you've, people have already built the hype. Everyone for months has been saying how amazing her is. So, it's, you know. It's not, you know, amazing is not the movie. It's not the word because it's not, you know, it's not flashing. It's not mm. like, you know, big production kind of thing. You know, it's yeah. not an action movie. The pace is really slow. But every moment is sort of considered, you know, mm. and it's like, it's, it's, it's kind of a slow movie, really. Nothing happens much. And, but it's all about, it's really introspective. And, and yeah, the word is just plain honest quite. It's, it's, yeah. I've just said I've just said a French word there. I hope you haven't. <laughs> I, hope you, I hope you haven't noticed. Well, no, I didn't. Um, I didn't notice until you've brought it up now, which means that you've told everybody that you made a mistake. Well done. Well done. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Finally, then to wrap this up, if if somebody says to you, Ellie, what's your favourite film? You tell them it's her. Why? Why would you say they should drop everything right now and go and? download or find her and watch it what is the one thing about her that you would say to people this is why you should watch her 
Okay, that's going to sound weird. Okay. But I would say Scarlett Johansson's voice. <laughs> that's not what, that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. It's, it's just so good. And you know what? The fun fact is that she wasn't even the first choice. Oh, know? right. And they, they made the movie with, I think, uh, an actress that's called Samantha Ronson. And okay. she, she she did the movie. And when Spike Jones edited it, he felt like it wasn't quite right. And so he recast oh. the role and Scarlett Johansson's got it. And oh my God, this was the best decision he ever made yeah. because she can convey so much just through her voice. It's, it's actually a good lesson in acting. And I, I'm really disappointed that the Oscars didn't nominate her just because we mm. can't see her yeah. on screen. I think it's such a bad idea because yeah. she is absolutely brilliant. She is, she is wonderful. Yeah. And um, because she's an operating system, she's born when the movie, you know, when you watch the movie. Mm. And so you can see her grow and, well, or hear her. Yeah, voice, yeah, yeah. Really. Yeah. And and the questions that she asks are are just so I mean actual, you know, and they 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 just really resonate and you sort of it, it it sort of yeah, it sort of made you wonder and so you grow with her. And I think the voice of Scarlett Johansson is something that is at the heart of the movie, obviously, mm-hmm. not because she is one of the main characters, but because she she really asks the question that matter in the movie, mm. and and she's she's absolutely fantastic. I'm I'm kind of a fan girl, you know. She's, she's <laughs> I love her. Well, I, I really love her. Well, I well I'm a fan boy, and if you haven't seen Under the Skin yet, then you really need to. I have to. I've read your I've oh, read your review. It, I mean, it does sound. It does sound scary. It, it is. It's it's very very unsettling, really unsettling, but in all the good ways. It is it is is unlike anything you've ever seen. And she is. I know that's what I've read. I know. I mean, you're not the first to say it. Yeah. And, um, I'm I'm really eager to see it. She's remarkable in that. Absolutely remarkable. But I think it's it's a, that's a fitting answer to the last question because the film is called her. So to actually answer that question by saying Scarlett Johansson's voice, it's perfect, perfectly fitting. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Oh, that's how smart I am. <laughs> <laughs> genius. Genius is the word. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much, Ellie, for coming on and waxing lyrical about her. Everyone needs to go out and check out her. I know I'll watch it. And then we can have you, we can have a chat where you can talk about the end. <laughs> then. Ooh. Oh, yeah. So, thank you, Ellie. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Okay, time for the new regular feature of my show in which I cycle through the UK movie top 10. Started doing this last week on the podcast and it seemed to go down fairly well. And I think this will be a regular fixture now, going through the charts as movies go up, movies go down, new movies come in, new movies go out. So let's get on with this week's top 10. At number 10, we have Calvary, which is down from number 7. I must say, I must point out an error that I made with Calvary last week when I talked about the director being Martin McDonough of In Bruges fame. It's actually not Martin McDonough, but his brother, John Michael McDonough, which people probably did spot. And I was corrected on this fact by my cine-literate friend, Dean, who was messaging me this week uh, talking about the podcast, and he pointed out quite rightly that it wasn't the right Madonna brother. And the actual Madonna brother who did this was the guy who did The Guard and not in Bruges. 
So apologies for that error. Thank you to Dean for pointing that out to me. If I ever do get things wrong on on the podcast, please let me know because obviously I need correcting and my knowledge of Irish film directors is clearly wanting. I'm looking forward to seeing Calvary though, like I said last week. Still haven't got a chance to see it. Doubtless I'll have to wait now until it comes on the Sky Plus box or on DVD or something like that. But I am looking forward to seeing it because it sounds like it's a really really good jet black comedy with some really good performances so it's good to see that Calvary is still hanging on in there in the top 10 for a little bit longer at number 9 down from number 6 we have Divergent based on the best selling novels by Veronica Roth and it seems to be dropping a fair bit Divergent through the charts and um, if I'm honest I'm not particularly sad about that because I didn't really think that much of it to tell you the truth I found it frankly quite dull I thought it was team-baiting, sub-Hunger Games blandness, as I said before. So that seems to be on its way out. It hasn't done a massive amount of business, really, in the UK, which doesn't surprise me, although we're still going to have two or three sequels. So so bye-bye, Divergent. You, pro- you may not survive the top ten next week. And number eight, down from number five, is The Love Punch, the rom-com starring... Well, maybe rom-com's the wrong word. Caper perhaps starring Pierce Brosnan and Emma Thompson it's not supposed to be particularly good The Love Punch, I've not seen The Love Punch it's supposed to be fairly average so yeah, not surprised that's dropping really, hasn't made much of a dent it's been up against far bigger films as well so it's unsurprising that it hasn't made that much of a dent The Love Punch, so that should be on its way out pretty soon as well number 7 in as a new entry is Cosi Fantute I think that's how you pronounce it, a Mozart opera, which is one of the many new innovations in cinemas where operas and shows from the West End are being shown as cinematic experiences and are now making a dent in the box office. So they're a fairly niche market, but they're obviously pulling in quite a lot of people. So it's interesting to see how those are going to develop and continue to potentially dominate the box office. Getting in at number seven isn't too bad, really. So quite a taking for that one. Whether it will be in next week, we'll see. At number six, down from number three, is Noah. That's a fair little bit of a dip for Noah there, although it is going up against some other big films, relatively big films anyway. And I've said before that I think Noah is a very mixed bag. Very ambitious, could grow on me, but on the whole, it's a strange beast of a film from Aronofsky. And I really really look forward to seeing it again one day on the small screen to see if it's well it'll still be as bonkers as it is but see if it, I like it a bit more so Noah may well soon drop out of the charts at this rate possibly at number 5 down one place from number 4 is Captain America The Winter Soldier which is again I've said I enjoyed pretty much for the most part one or two small things aside and it's hanging on in there doing pretty well it did dominate the, the charts for quite a few weeks before Spider-Man uh, swung his way in and the fact it's still holding firm halfway in means that it's not quite done yet so the box office takings for Captain America certainly overseas have been very good so I don't know if it's actually beaten its previous film the first Avenger but if it hasn't it's come damn close so it's been a success which is great because it is a genuinely good film and continues the Marvel dominance which I know I'm very happy about personally at number four, down from number two, is Rio 2. I haven't seen it. It's one for the family. Animation, supposed to be okay. 
nothing I'm particularly excited about seeing, but it's one for the kids, and the kids have been off, so it makes sense he's still there. Top three then, at number three, in at number three, is Transcendence. Now, I spoke about Transcendence at length last week. You, people may be wondering, how the hell has that got into number three, given the slatings it's had? Well, there's probably two reasons for that. Number one, the more people have a go at something, the more people are going to go and see it, quite frankly. You know, if you say some things, eh, it's relatively okay, people are going to go, oh, okay, might catch it then. If you say something awful, there's a good chance a lot of people are going to go, I need to see just how bad this is. It's that whole retroactive thing Transcendence isn't a good film it's a well it's a quite a well made film it's a quite attractive looking film it's a very thought provoking film it's also an incredibly dull one that has no sense of character or drama at all and it's going to I would imagine drop like a stone after this opening week it would it wouldn't surprise me if it did but it's going at number three and it probably could have done a bit better realistically Especially given at number two is The Other Woman, which, as you've heard me discuss on this podcast, is an abomination of a film. And I'm completely unsurprised that it's done well. Completely unsurprised, because it's a easygoing bit of fluffy rubbish that people, with no disrespect to people, and even people who may be listening to this, people are going to go and watch it because of the people involved and because of the fact that it's probably light, easygoing viewing, and I desperately hope most people came out and went, that is a waste of my money, because it would have been, because it's absolute garbage. But it will probably be around for a couple of weeks, and that's in at number two. Holding firm at the top, however, is The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Completely unsurprising. That was always going to dominate for a few weeks. There's a good chance that won't really get knocked off the perch, potentially, until Godzilla looms large in a couple of weeks time it may still hang on until then or it might get a couple of challenges along the way but there's a good chance it might still hang on in there Spider-Man 2 is good (laughs) it's good it's not great certainly not amazing as I said before it's got some great performances specifically from Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone but in terms of plot and pacing and length it's a mess poor Jamie Foxx is all I can say so The Amazing Spider-Man 2 is a very mixed bag. Very, very mixed bag. But it's unsurprising that it's at the top because it's Spider-Man and it's always good to see people like Spider-Man doing well. So I'm quite happy with that. But we'll see next week if anything unseats it. There are a few fair-sized films coming out. Pompeii will doubtless make a dent into the charts. It could could knock it off the number one spot, but maybe not we'll see it could be that now the kids have gone back to school Pompeii will swoop in and get a number one spot but we'll have to wait and see on that one like I say I suspect the next challenge is going to be Godzilla but we'll see so until next week okay next up I went to see a film that is possibly the actual definition of lowered expectations I went to see Pompeii it was the jewel
small corners of the Roman world, people would gather here. What is this? It is the mountain. Now, Pompeii is by the mighty Paul W.S. Anderson. Now, there's a difference between Paul W.S. Anderson and Paul Thomas Anderson. As in, Paul Thomas Anderson gives us things like There Will Be Blood and Boogie Nights and Magnolia, whereas Paul W.S. Anderson has treated us to films such as Mortal Kombat the movie and the litany of Resident Evil movies that he keeps foisting upon us every couple of years. Although he has also given us Event Horizon, which I stand by as being one of the best science fiction horror movies of the last 20 years. In fact, ever. I absolutely love Event Horizon, and it's proof positive that even the worst filmmakers have a great film in them. You know, even Michael Bay has The Rock. So, Paul W.S. Anderson is somebody who I know is capable of making things that are quite good. They're never great. He's never made, apart from Event Horizon, in my opinion, he's never made a truly great film, as in one that stands the test of time and it's got great characterization and great narrative and all these, all these things. But he has made fun, disposable things that are just completely dumb but enjoyable in certain ways. I would actually cite Alien vs. Predator, a film that gets a lot of stick for quite you know, appropriate reasons, for quite good reasons. But I would cite that as being another example of something that's utterly stupid and utterly without a lot of merit, but one that is quite enjoyable in its own way. And the same can very easily be said of Pompeii. And there's a big difference between Pompeii and the last film I saw Paul W.S. Anderson do, which was The Three Musketeers remake, which was awful in practically every way. And as a result, I went into Pompeii thinking it was going to be much of the same. It was going to be mindless, stupid, poorly written, badly directed, poor acting, you know, just, a, if not a crime against cinema, then something that's just without any kind of merit. Colour me surprised, therefore, to discover that it's actually fairly good. I say fairly good because I don't want anyone to get the impression that Paul W.S. Anderson has here made, you know, his godfather, okay? <laughs> or, you know, or his truly great film. He hasn't. Pompeii is not a great film at all. You know, it is rubbish. It is popcorn, blockbuster nonsense of the highest order. However, one of the things that distinguishes this from being a waste of time is the fact that quite often Anderson is trying to make cheesy blockbuster action fests, but he doesn't have much of a sense of humour along the way. I and mean, he, he plays things just way too overblown and cheesy without the fun. He, you, you know, you feel like he's having fun, but you're not. And that's, that's why quite a lot of his films sink. And one of the reasons, in fact, that Event Horizon was so good is that you're having fun because of the way he films it. And it's similar, not nearly as good, but it's similar with Pompeii in the fact that everyone involved clearly is enjoying themselves. Anderson is clearly enjoying himself. And he feels a bit more in on the joke. He, feel, he feels a little bit more that he's aware of the fact that this is all dumb, silly nonsense. Because he's quite blatant about the fact he's pillaging with Pompeii every single similar film under the sun, specifically Gladiator. You know, he's, he, he, literally, there are segments of Gladiator, of Gladiator that he lifts and puts into Pompeii. Do you remember in Gladiator that scene where Russell Crowe is fighting in the Colosseum and he's getting tons of backing from the crowd and Joaquin Phoenix is there 
deciding whether or not to have him killed because he's won all the games and he, he puts his thumb out and it's in the middle and he, and he has to decide whether to thumbs down or thumbs up depending on whether he lives or dies that exact sequence is in Bombay you know it's not near it's not obviously nearly done with the same skill as Ridley Scott did it but it's there and I, I was watching it thinking oh my god you have literally lifted this you know so it is Gladiator with a disaster movie ending basically it's Gladiator I think it was on the, the, the Kermode and Mayo podcast that somebody wrote in saying Gladiator 2 this time it's Pompeii <laughs> or something like that it could be a sequel it could quite easily be a sequel to Gladiator in many respects it wants to be so he's taken from tons of different things and he and obviously it's one of those films as well that you know much like Titanic you spend about an hour waiting for the vol- for, for the big thing to happen you know with Titanic it was the boat sinking with Pompeii it's Mount Vesuvius erupting and destroying the city so you would might you might expect to be sitting there for an hour watching the clock going okay just get on with it now just just explode and you know for the first hour or so it's it's ticking along with Vesuvius rumbling and grumbling and all the characters going oh don't worry that's that's just what Vesuvius does we get the odd earthquake don't worry about it right which is mental I mean the very fact that the Romans built Pompeii on the side of a fucking volcano is mental anyway. So, that, you know, that, that I've always wondered about that. I was like, what on earth possessed them? There probably is a reason out there, which I haven't read about. But anyway, so it's daft in the sense that nobody's really batting an eyelid and everyone's too busy, you know, with slaves and politics and love affairs and, and all this stuff to notice that this massive giant volcano is about to go boom but it's quite engaging you know it's 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 derivative it's stupid but you do become a little bit involved in the story you know you don't really care about any of the characters really because they're not really characters very much they're more just you know very stock one note people you've got Kit Harrington who could also be called Abs of Steel because he, he literally his, his abs are out of this world you know he said he trained he was going to the gym three times a day six days a week to get into this shape and he became by his own admission ridiculously obsessed and you can tell you know they are, they are ridiculous so he plays the, the the slave who he's brought in to be a gladiator and he's quite noble he's also incredibly boring but Kit Harrington, who of course plays Jon Snow in Game of Thrones he has a certain charm about him he has a certain likeable everyman charm everyman as in everyman who has abs but you know he's, he's, he's alright he's got that he's a likeable leading man he's, he's very good at all the sword slashing and all the fighting and everything like that. He's a good action man, basically. He works. As does Adewale uh, Akinoye Agbaje, or however you say his name. He's always great. He's always good fun. And he's a very noble African slave who wants his freedom. You know, a bit like Mr. Echo in Lost, if Mr. Echo was a gladi- gladiator in, in the old days. And he's he comes out with all these strong guys. He's got the best final line, I think, of the whole thing, which is, which is pretty badass. You know, I, <laughs> I did like that. And... So, you know, you've got those guys and then you've got, you know, people like Jared Harris and Carrie Ann Moss tooling up. You know, Jared Harris does get the best line of the film in which he exclaims uh, when his daughter, Emily Browning, is coming in with all their luggage. He says, Juno's tit. What's with all the luggage? <laughs> Juno's tit. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's brilliant. That, that, is, that is a slice of genius right there. And I am so nicking that. You know, I'm going to be regularly exclaiming, Juno's tit. You know, brilliant. So he's in it, and although he doesn't get that much to do, everything's better with Jared Harris in it. And then, you know, Emily Browning's nice, you know, she's pretty. She's, she's not the greatest actress in the world, but she's not the worst either. She's a perfectly decent little heroine. 
as the you know the the upper class lady who's dragged falls in love with the slave and all this but ultimately Pompeii belongs to one man one man who is a legend in his own right and especially this week given he's back on telly in his most iconic role but Kiefer Sutherland is what makes Pompeii fun because he plays the villain he plays this Roman senator soldier and it's you have to you have to you have to listen to him to believe his accent he's playing British but Keith Sutherland of course can't do a British accent because he's got such a a distinguished gravelly American tone you know the Sutherlands have got a very very distinguished distinguishable accent haven't they you know you can tell Donald or Kiefer Sutherland from a mile off you know they have that certain tone to their voice and when he's doing that and trying to do British he he sounds ridiculously camp it's 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 quite brilliant he's he's very soft-voiced but he's very posh as well and it's 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 great from the moment he's on screen you're loving every minute of it he's clearly loving every minute of it because he's playing an absolute bastard throughout the whole thing he is so he's completely one note a bastard but he's gloriously one of those bastards that you don't tend to see that much anymore in cinema because everyone's got shades of grey and he's one to it you know three dimensional he's not he's just a fucker all the way all the way through and Keeper's having a blast and I was enjoying it every time he was on screen so you've got that going on so the characters are quite engaging the story's fairly engaging even though it's predictable and then you've got Vesuvius erupting and that's great you know that, that, that comes out really well you know the, the effects are very good Anderson lets it rip on the city you know he's, he's himself has said that he, he did a lot of research on accurately depicting Pompeii and apparently that has, he's been championed by people historians for, for accurately depicting the city of Pompeii as it was and you know he's added he adds a lot of things for dramatic effect and stuff like that and, and of course you know in the middle of the fucking volcano going erupting people are fighting there's love affairs going on it's all this so it's all overblown and dramatic but it's fun it is actually fun and I was sitting there thinking I I really didn't expect to enjoy this as much as I did and I and I was I was I was in on the joke I, you know, I, I, I knew it was dumb I knew it was rubbish I knew it was silly I knew it was it, the sh- it was a shonky script and it, you know it's it's just utterly daft but it's good daft and there's a difference between bad daft and good daft is it in bad daft is when you're bored is when you're sitting there you know thinking please let this end I can't take any more and there are some Anderson films that are like that but with this it was good daft and it was it, it was just cheesy nonsense but good cheesy nonsense so to my surprise Pompeii is worth your time. Finally this week we have the latest foray back into the Judd Apatow style of romantic laddish comedy. It's time for Bad Neighbours. You guys have to come out. I haven't seen you in forever. I really need to get out of the house. We can have fun here. This is delightful. We should get one of these above our bed. Look, new neighbors. Oh. What do we got? Is that a fraternity? We have to go over there. We've got to be cool. And we say, by the way, keep it down. Well, we won't say it like that. Just like... Keep it down. What are you doing with this? Keep it down. Just like don't... Say. We've overworked it. 
Okay, so bad neighbours or, or neighbours, as it's just known as in the US, for, for whatever reason, I don't know why they dropped the bad or we added the bad. It possibly could be to distinguish from the Australian soap opera Neighbours, which is which would be ludicrous. But you know, who 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 on earth in England is going to think they've done a big screen version of Neighbours? But anyway, so Bad Neighbours is directed by Nicholas Stoller, who wrote, who has written with Judd Apatow. He's one of the people in in that stable. He co-wrote uh, two of the Muppets films as well, and he's directed quite well-known comedy films the last few years like Getting to the Greek and Forgetting Sarah Marshall and The Five Year Engagement things like that so he's he's of a certain ilk and this film is definitely of a certain ilk because it stars Seth Rogen now Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg wrote the script to Bad Neighbours and it's typically in their wheelhouse you know because it's it's fair to say that Seth Rogen only ever plays one character he always plays the same character and it is to an extent an extension of himself he's always this lovably boorish Jew although the Jew element is not massively apparent it's mentioned in this but it's not massively apparent some films it's very apparent but he always tends to play a variant on the same character you know like I say this boorish lovable oaf who is very much quite shouty and angry but also quite soft and gentle so it's the same performance and he is very Marmite Seth Rogen very very Marmite I've always found him quite funny not in everything but when he's got good people around him and he's got a decent script he is funny and he I, I do appreciate the humour that he does so immediately that's going to divide people the, the, the Apatow style as well and Judd Apatow isn't involved in this but he might as well be to an extent because the Judd Apatow Seth Rogen Evan Goldberg kind of style of comedy is one and the same to an extent and they are hit and miss you know for every 40 year old virgin there is a funny people and you know you, you do have this this disconnect the last one these guys did of course was This Is The End which I which last year which I felt was hit and miss itself you know it was a great idea but it didn't quite fire on all the cylinders it needed to fire on so this, I would say, is more akin to the quality of Knocked Up or Superbad, which is probably still their best one. It is, it is more edging towards that element, that area of quality, Bad Neighbours, because it has a very simple and effective premise in that you have this couple in their 30s who move into a new house, they've got a new baby, they're all happy, they're all quite loved up, and then next door they have a fraternity moving and a typical animal house kind of fraternity you know it's all beer kegs and yeah and you know pledges and people called ash juice not making that up there is actually a character called ash juice and it's just japes and parties and all this stuff and so they inevitably are thinking well we need to keep we want the noise to be kept down but at the same time they're struggling with the fact that they're getting older and that they're they used to be out partying and all this and they kind of still want to do that but they also want to get a good night's sleep and they've got a baby so you, you have the comedy there in these two things rubbing against each other and then it becomes very much about a game of one-upmanship in that they're trying to find a way to get rid of the fraternity and the fraternity keep you know potentially finding out what they're doing while they themselves are facing the fact the prospect of the fact this is their last year of being at college and and they're going to be moving on into their lives and things like that so you, you have all this different stuff going on but it is a film that hangs very much on the people involved 
and I think if you find the people involved funny you'll find the film funny because the script you know it, 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 it's, a, it's more of a base jumping off point for a lot of this you know Seth Rogen clearly improvises a lot of it Rose Byrne who plays his wife is improvising with him and there are a lot of scenes where they're just riffing off each other you know they've probably got a basic template of where the scene's going to go but they are just riffing but it works you know they actually do have chemistry you'd be surprised actually they have surprising chemistry and Rose Byrne is fantastic you know she she gets better in every film I think and she she has a real gift for comedy it also helps that she looks absolutely gorgeous throughout the whole of this and she's she's playing with her natural Australian accent which is wonderful to hear because she's she always seems to be better when she's when she's doing Aussie which probably makes a lot of sense I guess so they actually have really good chemistry and they spar off each other quite a lot and you do like them and then on the other side of the fence you've got a, a variety of, of, of people but it's mainly led by Zac Efron as the, the president of this fraternity and Dave Franco who's, who's his, like, his second in command and then you've got people like Christopher Mintz-Plasse for McLovin from Superbad and, and, and various other people who are knock, knocking about around there it's, it's weird because they're technically the, the villains in inverted commas if you like you know they're the ones causing all the trouble but they're actually quite likeable and you know Zac Efron he, he doesn't really tend to play bad guys and he's not really very good at playing the bad guy you know he's a bit edgy you know he's, he's the guy with all the muscles and the, the hot body and he's you know he's very serious about the fraternity and all this but when it when push comes to shove he's actually quite a decent bloke really and they all kind of are really and you're not if we're meant to dislike them that doesn't really work because we we quite like them for the fact they're getting one back up on Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne who actually are far more lunatic really than, than than the fraternity themselves the things they do to try and stop these people from ruining their night's sleep are pretty mad so they they become increasingly bonkers and you start to I did start to think well hang on a minute who who am I who am I supposed to be rooting for <laughs> here but luckily it's it's not that big a problem because simply for the fact that you have a lot of comedy that is working and in some of these some of these Stoller, Evan Goldberg, Seth Rogen comedies, that doesn't always happen. I mean, the, the Watch was one that was written by Goldberg, and that was, that was awful. I didn't laugh in about half an hour in that, you know. The aforementioned Funny People, which was very unfunny, you know, and that was a weird blend of drama and comedy. Pineapple Express, which gets, seems to get worse on every watch. It's just, they, they don't always get it right. And you know Bad Neighbours isn't perfect but the laugh ratio is higher than than you than you might expect I, I was laughing from the first scene the first the first introductory scene has a great central gag which neatly introduces all the characters quite well and it is funny and then and there were, there were real moments where I was genuinely laughing out loud there were, there were moments where when it, it goes a little bit flat and not all the gags do work but when it, when it is funny it is quite funny it is very funny so that works in a big way and there is a lot of charm in this. There is a lot of fun performances. You can tell everybody involved is having fun. Zac Efron is a little bit less comfortable, I think, with comedy than certainly, obviously, Rogan, who is his stock in trade. Rose Byrne's very comfortable with it. And the guys around Efron seem more comfortable. Dave Franco does a fantastic Robert De Niro impression at one point, in which there's this great scene where they're, they're having a Robert De Niro party and they're all dressed up as different versions of Robert De Niro and they start doing Robert De Niro impressions and it's, it's really it's a good scene and he's, he's it makes a fantastic Robert De Niro from Meet the Parents 
but Efron doesn't seem quite as, as at home with it certainly not with the improvisation but he's fairly new to all this you know he, he's shifting his gears from very you know soft teeny kind of stuff into more grown up stuff now so and he, he, I, I like him you know I like him he's a good actor he's, and he's he might be a pretty boy a preppy pretty boy but he's he's, a, he's quite a good actor and I I, I just I, he's likeable at the same time I actually hope he starts doing bigger and better things but ultimately Bad Neighbours doesn't suffer from a lot of the problems that some of these other films do for a start it's, it's only just over a, an hour and a half long which is all it needs to be because the very concept itself is fairly stretched out you know it is pretty much a one joke concept really and it builds and builds and builds to a bit of a you know, typically daft ending you know it is stretched out but it doesn't necessarily overstay its welcome which, which surprised me because I expected this to be really long and to have a lot of moments in it that dragged or, or just you know especially with improvisation but it doesn't really have that that much so on the whole I was laughing on the whole it was fairly well made performances were good people enjoying themselves it isn't memorable in any way you will walk out of that cinema and you won't remember very much apart from a few well executed gags specifically a very very well executed practical gag which you've probably seen in the trailers but it's very funny and yeah you won't really remember much of it in the long run this will be a great film actually to have a few beers with and a pizza late at night because you will be laughing you won't remember it but it'll make you laugh and sometimes that's all you need what do you got there sweetie? is that a balloon? that's not a balloon oh Jesus her mouth is going to be a little bit numb from the lubricant other than that you guys are free to go do you guys want the condom to take with you? I don't know if you still want to use it Last but very much not least then on this week's Black Hole Cinema, it's time to run down briefly the films that I watched over the last seven days before I bid you goodbye. And I didn't get to see as many as normal this time round, mainly due to various things going on in my personal life and etc, 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 things I won't bore you with. But I started last week with, unfortunately, a, a real dud in After Earth, which is the latest film from M. Night Shyamalan starring Will Smith and his son Jaden Smith and I'd heard a lot of bad things about this, it turns out they're all justified, After Earth is one of the dullest things I attempted to sit through, I say attempted because after 40 minutes I couldn't take any more it was awful boring, flat science fiction with good ideas but awful execution, I don't know how far worse Shyamalan can sink although give me a minute and I'll get to it I immediately knew I needed something to re revive my faith in cinema so I then watched Goodfellas which is I can't believe I'd never seen before and which is of course a cinematic great you know possibly Martin Scorsese's best film if not one of his best films it's just perfect in almost every way an absolute thrill ride with amazing performances and it's one of the coolest films that's ever been made. So if you've never seen Goodfellas, do what I did and sort it out. Day after then I watched Conan the Barbarian, the original Arnie film from 1982, the year of my birth, in fact. And it surprised me actually at how dragging it was, how leaden. I didn't expect that from Conan. I expected it to be a very raw, you know, shouty, ballsy action epic. But it wasn't. It was quite ponderous at times. And John Milius, the guy who directed it, who co-wrote Apocalypse Now got some very great ideas about you know epic themes and all this kind of stuff but it's just it's just very dull and it's before Arnie really learnt how to I say how to act 
if you see what I mean, you, you can't ever really act, but you know what I mean, before he turned on the charm. So he hasn't really got any of that in this either. He's just muscles, who says the odd line. So Conan didn't really do it for me, I'm afraid. Technically impressive, everything else wasn't there. Two days after that, I watched Breakdown, or rewatched Breakdown. And Breakdown is, is a film I've always liked. It's a cracking little thriller starring Kurt Russell as a guy who, whose wife disappears. They're out in the middle of nowhere. They break down in the middle of the desert. A trucker comes along, played by J.T. Walsh, who sadly died many years ago. But J.T. Walsh is a great actor. And he plays a trucker who offers to give the wife a lift to go and get them help, and the wife disappears. And Kurt Russell then goes on this mission to find out what's happened to his wife and runs up against some really nasty truckers and locals and things like that. And it's like, it's like a cross between The Lady Vanishes and Steven Spielberg's Jewel, which is one of my favourite films ever. So it really ramps it up. It's got a great finale. It's got The final 20 minutes are just epic and it's it's really really good it's a great great little thriller that does what it says in the tin really well then on the 1st of May Pinch Punch 1st of the month I watched three films I started with Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon which I'd seen long ago actually and I'd actually forgotten until I realised I had rewatched it and Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon is a funny one because it's never really clicked with me like a lot it has with a lot of people it just feels very distancing and it feels very cold and I couldn't really get involved. I was in, I was visually impressed with it. You know, I was impressed with how it looks, but I found it vaguely ridiculous in a way that is hard for me to explain. So I appreciate the artistic merit of what Ang Lee was trying to do, and I think it's a very, very skilled film, and it is in, in some places really well done. But I can't quite fall in love with it, unfortunately. But it's definitely one to see. After that, I suffered fun with Dick and Jane, with Jim Carrey and Taylor Leone, which... Certainly has Dick and Jane, but I don't remember there being any fun. So avoid that one, because it's rubbish. Finally, I watched The Oranges, which is a really interesting little film from Julian Ferrino, which is a cross-generational love story between Hugh Laurie and Leighton Meester, and this involves these two families. And it's very middle-class and a little bit smug at times. And it can't quite figure out whether it wants to be a drama or a comedy or a farce or something quite serious and something a bit edgy. And it's never really any of those things. But it's it's good. It's quite well written. It's a script off the blacklist. It's pretty well written. It's got some really good performances. Hugh Laurie's very good. It's saved primarily by Alison Janney and Oliver Platt, who are fantastic as the parents of Leighton Meester. And it's a quite a, quite an interesting little film. It, uh, it's not massively well seen, but I, I would recommend you check that out, even though it's it doesn't quite live up to the sum of its parts. The day after then, I watched The Last Airbender. <laughs> Um, what can possibly be said about this that most people haven't it is abysmal in, in, in a way that is hard to really to truly explain unless you see it and it, and it is it is the worst thing that M. Night Shyamalan surely will ever do if, if he can if he can do so After Earth was close but if he can do something as bad as The Last Airbender then he really is a talented man in all the wrong ways it, it's 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 not even worth talking about except for the fact that my baseline humour level was laughing concurrently at the fact that constantly people refer to these gifted magicians as benders and if you live in Britain bender means something very different than what this film expects it to mean and it was at the point when an old woman went ever since I knew you were a bender I realised your destiny or something like that was the point I started laughing and I don't think I stopped and it was the only thing that got me through the next hour or so. So if 
if you aren't in the mood to kill yourself, I recommend you miss The Last Airbender and only watch it if you are a Shyamalan completist, which I am, because I'm an idiot. And then lastly, the last one I watched was Final Fantasy The Spirits Within, which is from 2001. And this is a, a, an interesting one because it, it tried to basically reinvent a whole new idea with Hollywood. It tried to invent a whole new idea of photorealism. Because Final Fantasy has the voices of quite a lot of well-known actors like James Woods and Alec Baldwin and, and people like this. But it's photorealistically done with animation. So it's, it's real people, but animated in a sense. And they are like human beings, except they are purely animated. And it's that, visually, it's really impressive. And it's, it's, it's kind of used technology that has been developed by Avatar and will continue to be developed over time. So from that respect, it actually deserves remembering. But in terms of everything else, it is incredibly boring, incredibly dull. It's got that hippie vibe that a lot of these Final Fantasy games do, which is all very eco-centric and all about Gaia and the Planet Force and blah, just snoozing-juicing stuff. So from a plot, narrative, dialogue level, it's rubbish. But from a visual level, and from what it's trying to achieve, it is quite impressive and it does deserve watching. So I would check that one out if you're interested in that kind of thing. So that's where I'm up to. And I fully intend to watch some more on this Bank Holiday weekend. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Black Hole Cinema. It has again been quite long because I've been fitting in four reviews and extra chatter. But hopefully it's not too bad. Let me know, as I say, if it's too long, if you think the episode should be shorter or... Just feedback at all on what you might think on Twitter if you'd like to find us at Black Hole Cinema. Simple as a simple does. People are starting to follow a bit more, which is nice. Keep on downloading on Podomatic or iTunes. Downloads seem to be at a nicely steady, improving pace, so that's great. So thank you, everyone, again, for listening. And whatever you do over this next week, enjoy whatever films you watch, and I'll see you again. Take care, everybody. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.